Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy, mountain bikers. Thanks for being here, and welcome to episode 157 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here as always to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to go on the trails, keep you stoked and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved while you're here. So thanks so much for tuning into the show and thanks for listening to the podcast this week. On today's episode we are chatting with David and Neil from Sonder Bikes about building a bike brand that is very much aimed at the UK trails and the UK rider. Their bikes are very well priced, they're built in the UK and they're made to order. So their distribution channels a little bit different than the big players out there. So basically it makes a more bespoke bike for you and keeps the prices low. Their supply and demand is spot on. And it was very, very interesting talking to David, who is the co-owner of their parent company called Alpkit, and Neil, who is the Sonder bike designer. The Sonder bike range is very impressive and covers mountain, gravel, adventure and road bikes. And it was great timing to get David and Neil on the show as the Sonder crew have just released their new full suspension 150 travel enduro style ride, which we chat about on the podcast and we get into a little bit more detail on why they wanted to go this direction and, and make this bike because they have a great range of mountain bikes there, full suspension, hardtail, everything you would really need to hit the trails. So we chat about all things Sonder, of course, including their distribution chain, their environmental responsibility and sustainability outlook, which they take very seriously, um, and their customer care, which also plays a large part in their vision for the brand. Their bike range, their new steel hardtail, and about being one of the first, if not the only, bike brand to be a certified B Corporation. We chat about all this, obviously about mountain bikes and about riding, um, but how the company has grown to where it is today is such an impressive company. Um, and it started as an outdoors company, but they have progressed into the mountain bike scene and their stuff looks really, really good. So certainly, certainly go check them out for sure. But until then, let's get David, let's get Neil on the show and let's have a chat about Sonder Mountain Bikes. Hi guys, welcome to the MTB Tribe podcast. It's cool to have you on today. How's things with you at the Alpkit Business Corporation Empire that you have there? <laughs> Hi Gareth, thanks for that. Yes, it's good. Autumn's truly arrived in the Peak District. It's a grey, drizzly morning here. Things wow. okay with you in Port Rush? Yeah, you know, it's grey here too, but it's been wet here. It's been wet. There's no doubt about it. But the 12 but, weeks of sun over lockdown was something special, eh? Well, I was actually in Malta at that time. It, it was like in the forties there. That was brutal. But <laughs> is that a good place to have lockdown? I think probably. I think it, yeah. Well, you know what? They've done it very well there. To be honest, they uh, shut things very quickly. Everybody was wearing masks from day one. Um, it, it happened really well there. You know, as as such as there was very little cases. I thought it was going to be a disaster because we're so close to Italy there. And there would be a lot of commerce between Malta and Italy, but it was very, very good now, to be honest. And they opened things up a lot earlier than a lot of other places. So it was quite good. But getting out of there to come home was quite difficult because the airports were closed. Yes, so, it's been challenging time for us all, eh? 
Yeah, definitely. Like anybody I've been speaking to in the podcast is, it's just affected everything. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. doesn't matter what you do. It's kind of affected it. And, you know, so it's, it's one of those things, but hopefully it'll come to an end pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you guys run um, a business here called Albkit, and uh, we'll get into that and we'll get into your Saunder bikes as well. Obviously, that's what the people want to hear that are tuning in here. But like, how did it affect you? Because, you know, Albkit's an outdoors business, really, isn't it? So tell us a little bit about that and how the whole COVID thing affected your business. Well, how, how it affected us? So we're primarily an online brand. So we started as a, a design of outdoor products. So that's uh, clothing, tents, camping, bike, packing bags, that kind of thing before we started doing Sonder bikes. So we sell primarily online and we've got four shops. And we employ about 85 staff at the moment. So initially when it happened, you just think, oh my gosh, how am I going to deal with this? Because we've got a supply problem. There's a shops are shut. You've got 85 people. You've got to pay the wages for every month. Um, and we did have a couple of weeks where it's more the fear of, of the unknown, actually, of what would mm-hmm. happen. But since then, I mean, touch wood, I really, really count Alpkit as fortunate because like a lot of people in bike and outdoor, sales-wise, just thinking purely, purely, purely from a business perspective, we're doing all right, um, which is a real joy and everybody is safe. So we've had no redundancies, we've not cancelled any orders and actually we're pretty buoyant and feel match fit now. We're placing extra orders. We're placing extra orders and in fact, we can't, we can't build bikes quick enough. No. Um, so overall, I don't want to kind of too many positives about how we're having a good time out of a terrible situation mm, mm-hmm. but the good news is you know everyone at Outkit is safe and no no redundancies and the future's looking good yeah like i know the bike industry you guys will obviously know it as well but you know i've been speaking to people from tasmania i've been speaking to people from uh, america and from africa and the bike scene has just been crazy over the covid thing for everybody and there's yeah. no bikes left anywhere. Did you find that with the outdoor side of things as well? Yeah, completely. So we were finding in lockdown, it's quite amazing. So we started selling bouldering mats and, and slack lines and that kind of thing. We were just selling selling a lot. Tents, it was incredible. We were selling bivvies and we had a new hoop bivvy launch and that sold out before it hit the shores here during lockdown. And you just think, how, how does that happen? So it's been it's been a real joy, actually been a real joy. Yeah, it's good the to old, see people getting out. The whole industry, the whole industry is doing well, and I really like it when the industry does well because it's welcoming new people into the outdoors, new people into riding. I don't think we're not selling to new people at our part, but there's a lot more people riding for the first time, um, and that's something that I love and something to celebrate. Um, it's a bit challenging when you see people riding without helmets, mm. <laughs> going down scary stuff, and not really knowing what their kind of the experience level and knowledge level isn't as good but that what you hope is it catches uh an imagination that will then go into a lifelong love of the outdoors yeah yeah um for sure and i know our trail centers here and stuff have been really busy with with people on them and the good thing about the mountain bike scene is a lot you know the guys that do it properly we all do wear helmets and it's, yeah. it's not like skate parks. You go to skate parks, none of them kids are wearing helmets. Uh, uh, no, probably an is wearing, do they? They all, uh, I don't know, obviously pretty good at crashing because they're all still alive. Yeah, it's crazy. And one thing, totally off topic, but one thing <laughs> I'll just mention. I was at Teen a couple of years ago and snowboarding. And the one thing that, no, 
I'm lying, it wasn't Tien, it was Laplanye. The one okay. thing that blew me away was the instructors weren't wearing helmets. They were taking kids out, they were instructing, you know, schools of kids and stuff. They weren't wearing helmets. I thought, mm-hmm. that's unbelievable. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you know the Laplanye logo, it's kind of like a wee dude wearing a, a pointy red bobble hat. They yeah, were all wearing. They were all wearing pointy red bobble hats. <laughs> yeah, safety first. Yeah. <laughs> we fall in love with Vettwil as a place because the skiing's fantastic, and then with the EWS course there, it's like summer and winter, and it's just across the way from Teen and uh, well, it's like across the way from Verosier, which is Teen and La Plania kind of way, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a superb place to ride and ski and cool. snowboard. Very good. Ah, it's great when you find somebody like that. Tell us a little bit about. Um, I'll cut then, David, because you're the owner of the brand, and Neil that's yeah. along with you, he's the designer, so on, and we'll get to that. Yeah, I'm one of the owners. I'm not the the right. owner. So Outkit was founded in 2004 by – I'm not actually one of the people right at the outset. Um, I got involved in 20, 2014, so six years ago. So it's founded by four friends, all uh, outdoor enthusiasts who run Ride Climb, uh, all working in the outdoor industry. And really, through – being really excellent designers, one of the founders was design director at what's now Rap, um, saw the power of the internet and set up their own brand, really just to sell well-thought-out product, doing it the right way, selling it direct and being on being online. Um, and it's, it's a really, it's a lovely business to be part of. Um, I joined in 2014. Um, before that, I was uh, on the board at uh, another outdoor retail called Go Outdoors. Um, and I was mm-hmm. there from when we grew from three shops to about 40 shops. Um, and I joined the team, and, and since then we've had a real. Um, it's been good fun, and I think we all we all love it. And we started Sonda Bikes. We've got uh, Outkit Foundation, which is our charity that we we supported, eight hundred projects and given about three hundred thousand pounds to over over five years. So it's uh, something that we enjoy a lot. Yeah, like your your website is very good. You you know it's obviously got everything you need there for outdoors um but your sustainability and all that kind of stuff and your sourcing of materials is very impressive um mm-hmm. did the business go from that from day one was that kind of one of yeah, the initial completely and it's more just kind of in, in our nature so first and foremost we're an outdoor brand and it's the love of the outdoors it's just outdoors is good and when you love the outdoors and you've got a shared passion for the outdoors, and I think a lot of people, whether you ride, you know, run, a lot of people do multi-activity. You know, so people do go camping and riding. Um, and, but through a shared love of the outdoors, that just means you do things the right way. And we've all, we'd all worked in the outdoors beforehand. And when started Outkit, Nick, Ken, Cole, Jim, really set about just doing business your way you want to. It's, it's in, our, in our blood. Um, Mm-hmm. So in 2004, we wrote up on the website things like no child labour, pay your taxes, <laughs> no bribery. You do, and so we've definitely tried to build the business the right way, how we're pleased. And that's manifested itself now with um, a much clearer sustainability principle. And it's something that's changed where we just did it for ourselves, but it's a lot more important to customers now. Um, mm-hmm. And we've just gone through the process of getting B Corp certification which is really the gold standard in sustainability. And it recognizes just how broad sustainability is. It is. It's not just one topic 
like a carbon footprint, but it's you know working with good suppliers, good factories, and making sure the supply chain is good. It's about building a good team and making sure you pay fair wages to everyone who's in there, and you really look to develop the team. So everyone here, you can buy and sell holidays, and everyone gets volunteer paid volunteer days to help out with stuff. Um, so we take all of that very seriously. Um, so it's not it's not an add-on or something we do extra. It's just what we do. But that manifests itself in the bikes that we design, what we sell, and how we go about trying to do stuff. And we're not perfect, and we don't have all the answers, so we're not uh, trying to be too worthy about it. But it's a, a thought for a long time. If you applied in, in the workplace what you apply at home, then that will just make a massive difference and use business as a force for good. And that's mm. what is very, very important to us. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know, because a lot of businesses now seem to be having to go down this route. Now, whether it's forced because consumers want it or it's the trendy thing to do or whatever. But you guys seem to have been doing that from the start, kind of like a Patagonia type idea. Um, yeah. The the certified B Corporation thing's very interesting. So how does that differ from the likes of the other stuff out there? What makes that so different? Um, they've they, what they've done is um, take some sustainability principles and put it into a framework. So it's there's a lot you can feel really weighed down by the weight of the problems of the world, but by having a framework, it can help lead you through and see the good that you do. Um, and so it then gives a pathway. So how you can make small steps and ultimately create a, a truly sustainable business. Um, now it is obviously sustainable in the context of being buying and selling product. Um, but the, it does give a pathway that people can, can adopt. And it's quite a challenging process. You have to be quite rigorous. And you have to set up, so we've changed the rules of the company that profit isn't our only motive. So we're not here just to make profit, but we're here to look after our customers, to look after our staff, to look after the environment we're in and treat animals humanely. I love that the breadth of, of activity. So B Corp, what's really good about B Corp is it gives a framework of how you can balance off you know, treating animals humanely compared to looking after staff and looking after customers. It just gets too complicated without a framework. Um, so it is good. It's come in from the US. So in truth, I was a little bit skeptical of its relevance to us to begin with, but it's really helped us. And it helps just share information with all the team of just what you're doing and what you plan to do. Um, yeah, no, it and it is. helps particularly like with, with bikes, particularly, you know, we sell titanium and we sell a lot of steel. Um, we're not doing so many carbon bikes anymore. And that's just because we think that's the right way to do it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I was going to ask how it kind of relates to the, the bike thing. I think, yeah. you know, people know about materials and how, you know, they can obviously, you know, affect people in sweatshops and everything else and certain materials are used which, like, which aren't good, like down materials and stuff like that. Um, mm. So how does that affect the bikes then? How does it actually work with with a bike brand? Well, for me, Neil can talk a bit about bike design because um, he's master master at that. Maybe that's not my my bit. But if I talk about just how it manifests itself, we um, sell only sell a bike to order. So loads of other bike brands will bring in huge swathes of built bikes from the Far East. And then you're in a way of actually the industry then has got to, they talk about shifting units and that kind of thing. Whereas we buy frames, we build every bike to order. 
So that means you're just cutting out an awful amount of wastage in uh, in what you do. And I think ultimately you give customers better service. So we sell pure group sets that you can, you know, whether it's, you know, SRAM or Shimano, we, we sell the group sets as they're designed to be put together. We don't come up with a hodgepodge of mixing and matching no code stuff with GX or NX. So by actually designing things as a as a kind of modular system and you can choose what you want to order, it means for the enthusiast of whatever, whether you gravel, road, downhill, enduro, not we don't do a downhill bike at the moment, but you can actually spec the bike that you want and we'll serve that in a couple of weeks. And I love that idea of actually making a bike to order. It means it's not off the shelf. I think on the uh, like the ethical side of things as well, we work with the right factories. Like we get out there, we visit the suppliers, um, we you know, we meet the staff, um, and we see do, we do see differences in different factories, and we see where staff are happy, where they're not. Um, there's a problem in a lot of Chinese factories where staff don't come back after their New Year's New Year's break. Uh, like they they go back, and because they're not getting paid well enough, they think, oh, I'm in no rush, I'll just find another job. Um, and you see that quality dip in those factories. Whereas the factories that pay fair, the staff come back because they like the job, it's good money, and they get good at what they do. So you do get you know, sort of two benefits, really, staff happy. We know we're working with a company who look after the staff, but then we get a better product because of it. Mm. I mean, it's yeah. proper good handcrafted frames. Yeah, all of our frames are handmade. Yeah. And, mm. and it's, it's the process is really, really, really quite good. And so, yeah. Yeah, because that's the problem, isn't it? You know, you're, it's so, so hard, so difficult to trace a product from the very start point, say the field or whatever, to the actual consumer. That supply chain, there's so many different elements to it that it's so hard to trace where things are yeah. coming from. And, you know, because you're not there, you're not on the ground. Um, so it's interesting that you guys go and visit the actual factories and chat to the staff and everything else there. Do you have somebody there all the time that's kind of looking after your quality control and stuff like that? We, we do the QC ourselves, so we do go to the forest quite a bit. But that that level of, um, there's a lot um, of trust. And I think that trust, I really put a lot by meeting the factory owners, you know, you know meet every factory owner like every 18 months and mm. you're kind of that eye-to-eye conversation seeing how you're doing and walking around the factory and so go and see what the loos are like and what the restrooms you know the kitchen areas are like and you can often tell when you're walking around a factory of just whether people are looking at you smiling yeah. or yeah. head yeah. down just the body language run, run like boot camps and then some that are you can tell. and i think in in any kind of system like do you really know I mean, I'm a veggie and they're kind of thinking, if I go to my grandma's house, do I really know she's not put a bit of chicken stock in the soup she's made? Mm. Even if she says she, you know, kind of, you can always have, um, there's always deception in the system. But because we're clear about the kind of providence of what we're buying and we work with factories and factory owners that we trust, and that's over a long, long period of time, I think that's good ingredients. Not that we won't ever be caught out. And we have occasionally been caught out over the years with stuff happening that you're not happy with, but it just reduces your chances of that happening a lot. And it's probably some of the auditing that happens you can go and paid for. They're literally spending 20 minutes in the factory, yeah. half an hour in the factory, mm-hmm. an hour research, a couple of hours write up. And that's that's their report. And I think it's far more relevant that us, you know, we're out there. 
you know, it's Neil who's out there, Neil who's designing the bike, Neil who's at the factory, Neil who's serving the customers. That is a short, that, that's a really good way of making sure the provenance of what you're doing is right. Yeah, so Neil, when you go out there, what do you, well, first of all, does the like of, of the B Corporation certification, does that actually point you in the right direction of who they would advise going to or anything like that, or is it really mainly up to yourself? That's just up to us, I'd say. There's no direction from them. It's up to us to make the call, and then I think they sort of assess certain factories. Um but yeah, like like David said, we're trying to get out there as often as possible. Obviously, this last year has been difficult. I would usually go out uh, towards the end of March, um, and I've decided to cancel my trip. Um, and probably not going to get out there now until maybe March next year, if I'm lucky. Um, but we, we sort of do two different types of trip. We do the regular trade trip circuit. So we, we get out to um, Taipei in March, Taichung in October, potentially Eurobike as well. Um, and that's where all the suppliers are in one place. So you sit down, have a chat, have a good catch up, go through anything you want to go through. Um, sometimes go out for nice meals, take that, treat some nice food. So that's, that's a bit of a perk. Um, and then um, we take trips at different times for factory visits. So separately, uh, year before last, I did a trip to China uh, and I had about eight days just going around uh, sort of Shenzhen area um Xiamen visiting our tire factory carbon factories um both aluminium frame factories that we use um and that was probably the most useful trip i've ever been on just because as i say you get to see the difference in working conditions work working standards um you know, quality of work um it's yeah it's it's massive it's you can't put a value on it really mm. do you see quite a big discrepancy between the real low end and the high end stuff Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, even the low and sort of low from a slightly better factory. You know, so the, the factory we now use for all our frames, uh, all our aluminium frames, should I say, um, their quality of work is is mind-blowing. And as I was saying earlier, they're the guys who pay fair and staff come back. Uh, so they're well-practiced at what they do. Um, and, yeah, when you compare that to what some other people do, it's, it's a no-brainer, really, mm. um, to, to go with those guys. We've yeah. got our own small factory that makes about 10, 15% of what we make. The bikepacking bags are all made by us in the UK. So it's interesting when you're looking at the stuff we make in the UK and the stuff that is made in the Far East. And sometimes when I go to the Far East, the investment in machinery you've got, I'm talking more about clothing, is that you've got laser cutting of really premium fabrics that's then welded together. And the automation, it's mind-blowing. And sometimes I'm there thinking back to the factory we have in the UK, how can I compete with this? And, you know, the, the infrastructure. So what's unusual at the moment is a lot of the skilled technicians and a lot of the quality investment, unfortunately, is in those factories in the Far East rather than factories in the UK. And particularly when we look at making things like, you know, some of the UK clothing and a go around factories in the Midlands and, and the North to make stuff in the UK. And some of those factories aren't working on, on the level that they are in the in the far east mm. but so there's good and bad factories yeah. worldwide and i think for us we kind of say what the elements of making really good quality stuff is first of all you have you've got to have a pretty shit hot designer who knows the stuff and is is bold enough to make decisions so you're not just following the pack 
Secondly, you've got to make sure you've got, got really good fabric and component selection. So you're using the good materials to start with, whether that's technical premium outdoor stuff or titanium or the level of alloys, you know, that kind of the grade of carbon that we may choose to use. And thirdly, working with the best factories in the world or the ones you rate the best. And then you're going to have, you know, you've got the building blocks of a really, really good product. Um, and it's amazing the number of times people shortcut that to effectively save a few dollars or a few cents and it's just not worth it yeah no and i can see that and it's i'm sure it's quite a difficult process to start up you know to go from the start to the end um to set it up properly you're, you're going to have to go out of your way to find these proper factories it would be very easy to go into the first or second factory you visit and just think ah oh, well that'll do rightly you know what i mean so you and, really and you can like you can go into Alibaba in the sea, can I buy a carbon frame or an alloy frame and buy a sample? Yeah. And, and you know, you can get for a few hundred dollars, you can get, uh, anyone can buy a frame for the Far East, you know, but I think what we, uh, there's still a big art in geometry and frame design. There's a big art in making sure the QC is right, the quality processes are right. And factory selection is so, so, so important. Yeah, no, I can obviously see that. And, you know, it, it's interesting to me that you've went into the bike thing um, because you're so well established and, and you do such good stuff on the the Alp kit. So what made you make that jump into the bike scene? What made you move into there? Because it's totally different from making clothes, really, and it's different fibers oh, and everything else. So. Um, probably mainly is we wanted to <laughs> kind of. Um, I lived in, living, we live in, I live in Derbyshire Peak District. I live in a village called Hayfield, which is in the edge of the Peak District. Um, it's a bit of mecca for mountain biking around our way. And particularly six, eight years ago, 10 years ago, which is probably the height of Sky Team, I was seeing there's a real polarization into kind of full face helmet enduro and kind of lycra. Oh, that uh, an out road raised peloton and where i was in hayfield i was thinking well how the industry was polarizing just didn't mean a lot to me individually and the kind of riding i loved which is just is just peak district trail riding road riding brideway kind of stuff and it wasn't just it isn't just for myself i think it didn't mean a lot to many many uk riders and what we've been kind of overwhelmed with is just how big the opportunity and how many people identify with the kind of riding that we all do, whether that's kind of Jacob, Jacob's Ladder, Lockerbrook, kind of yeah. big peak district trails or kind of, you know, the bikepacking kind of going off and doing stuff for yourself. And the the roads around the Peak Park are, you know, so full with cars. There's not enough room for a road bike and two cars. The, having a bike that is great to just go off, you know, in where there's a bit more road debris and gravel in the middle, you know, if you're on a kind of full carbon 23 mil tires as people were under PSI, that's a challenge, you know. Mm. So we came up with three. So it's really from uh, just a feeling that, you know, from on one level, you kind of think, does the world really need another outdoor brand or do we really need another bike brand? But when you come back and you're in the peaks and you're seeing people riding, you know, 160, 170 mil tires, riding up past us past 20 trees trying to pedal it out going up over Edel cross you think come on you know get your send a short travel 29er kind of thing or you know one about broken road hardtails you want to do a 25 mile around the peak you know 29er hardtail is just is the business and that's the same for neil's riding in 
note as well. You'd, you'd yeah, know. yeah. So like my, I'm not as lucky as David. I don't get to live right on the edge of the peaks, but um, my local ride is sort of a good couple of mile road to get to the decent stuff. Um, and I come from sort of a dirt jump background when I was a kid, and then as soon as I got a car, I bought a downhill bike, so I could drive to the downhill stuff. Um, so quite different riding, but like over the years, I've sort of matured and just become yeah, just a, I class myself as an aggressive trail rider. Really, uh, I still I ride for the descents and for the jumps, but I appreciate I have to pedal everywhere, so I ride a bike that is pedalable, which mm-hmm. is a mid travel twenty nine. Um, and yeah, my, I think what Dave's saying about the um, having extreme road race bikes and then enduro bikes and that's pretty much all you see is like my thing is I'm, I'm not a racer i've never been a racer so i don't build bikes with racing in my mind um i sort of i build them for the ride that i want to do basically and that's that is just enjoying my local trails um and i think that's what a, a lot of people sort of do need to realize a bit that they don't need to buy this sort of the bike that Sam Hills just won a EWS on. They don't need that bike to ride their local trails. And it's not going to be the best bike for local trails. Best bike probably is going to be shorter travel, like slightly less aggressive angles. Um, and you're going to get more out of it um, at, at lower speed. It's like driving. A, you may um, well drive, drive faster just because you're exactly, happy yeah, riding. Yeah. Faster. It'll feel faster. It's like um, riding an, uh, driving an MX-5 down a B road versus a 911 GT3. Like you're not going to get the most out of GC3, but the MX5 will be a right good laugh, mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of yeah, that's my view on sort of UK bike design, really. I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, I've had Alistair Baker on the show a couple of times, and he designed that nuke proof that Sam Hill uh, won on initially when they when he came to the nuke proof brand, yeah. and. Um, I come from the surf industry and I see a lot of comparisons between the two, you know, and I remember speaking to a surfboard designer and he was saying, Kelly, I don't know if you know who Kelly Slater is, but yeah, yeah, he's like 11 times world champion. He's just, he's just the goat of surfing, you know, um, but he's riding all these boards and he's kind of, he's got his own surf, his own surf board brand now. So, but he's very, into the design of the thing too so he's going out surfing these competitions on these boards that are very different from what other people are surfing but then all of a sudden everybody wants that board and i remember chatting to this guy who's a really really top class designer and he was saying you know whatever board kelly slater is surfing that's the board you don't want to be surfing because you can't surf like kelly slater you're not kelly slater (laughs) yeah you know and I was wondering if that makes the same sense in mountain bikes. You know, like, I suppose it is such a personal thing anyway. You know, so yeah. a bike that, let's say, Sam Hill rides or a bike that any of the top pros ride may not just suit you anyway. But do you look at it like that? You know, do you think those bikes are almost too advanced for what the normal rider is doing and on I, his I weekends? So. Or? Yeah, I think so. Like, I class myself as a pretty capable rider. Um, but... I understand that you know, a 160mm travel, like I'm only 5'8", but some medium-sized bikes now are like 480 reach, so they're getting super long. Um, and I understand that that's going to feel like a pig down my local trails, and it's not going to be very nice to pedal around on. Um, what is going to work is like a, a 430, 440 reach um, with a little bit less travel, slightly less aggressive angles. And I think it's just about knowing your, knowing 
your ability and knowing where the limits are. Um, so many people are riding bikes that are so much better than they'll ever be that it's just a waste, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a bit about the train that you're operating. So if you use a kind of like an analogy of uh, climbing Everest, what you need to wear to climb Everest is so different from what you need to go up Snowden. Now, the thing is, it's the same same person. So it's not it's less about the person. It's more about where you're riding it. Yeah. So if you're choosing to ride EWS in a twill or you know, big bike, part was, there's a couple of areas where you do need that kind of bike, and it's perfect for that kind of bike. But for the kind of terrain of the UK, um, I'm really, I have something about if it works in the Alps and it works on Kinder, then it's something Alpkit or Sonder should do. So it's the bit about making it really relevant to the UK. Yeah. I think the thing yeah. is you do see... Like my, one of my sort of gripes is that um, all the gain idea um, when you you, know, you come up behind someone on a trail like I'll be riding a hardtail with a 130 fork and you come piling up behind someone on a um, orange stage stage six or something or a, a Santa Cruz tall boy uh, you know, one of the big ones a nomad or something um, and they haven't got a clue what they're doing and they've spent seven grand on a bike that is completely wasted on them it drives them mad um, and I think more people just realise that they don't need these great big sort of over-the-top bikes for the local trails. They'd enjoy it a lot more. I don't see any compromise in what we do, though. It's not that we're compromising. No, no, we're definitely not compromising. Like, our bikes are definitely super capable, um, but they're bikes for normal riders. They're not bikes for professional racers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I suppose it's kind of like your surf quiver. You need different boards for different conditions. So you're kind of you're kind of saying that, and it's all these brands now for enduro especially are are trying to get this bike that goes downhill really well and pedals uphill really well. And do you think that's something that obviously everybody's trying to get as close to that as possible? But do you think the two could work together? I think they definitely can. Um, I think it's just a trade-off. Um, in travel, really, um, obviously new shocks. Shocks are getting better, so you get really good pedal platforms like the Cane Creek climb switches, like my favourite. It's just it's amazing what that thing does. Um, but I, yeah, again, I, it sort of comes down to: do you really need that much travel for? Uh, yeah, granted, if you are out doing EWS courses, then you are going to go for a bike that's more compromised climbing to benefit you downhill. But if you only do that once a year then the rest of the time you're riding UK trails and that little bit shorter bike um, sort of sweet spot for my personal ride is like a 140, 150. And I think I could take that in, take that just about anywhere. Um, so like 140, 150, 29er, middle in reach, you know, nothing too crazy, but but long. So it's stable at speed. Uh, I think that's a sweet spot and that'll pedal as well as most sort of mid-travel trail bikes would. Uh, but it being that little bit more aggressive setup, it's going to probably keep up with most enduro bikes as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. And what I love about the Saunder brand is it's very nicely priced. Um, it's really keenly priced to people getting into the into the bike scene and not spending an absolute fortune on a bike. Uh, but your your components and all are still very, very nice there. Um, and I want to get into that a little bit later but Neil tell me a little bit about your background how you get into designing bikes because I think that's always very interesting to know yeah um I think I've been pretty lucky to get my to get here to be honest um so I started out um sort of teenager working in bike shops um didn't really know what I wanted to do in my life so I was doing IT at college 
Um, did four years of IT, decided I hate computers. So um, when I finished college at, at um, well, yeah, I finished when I was like 19, um, just decided to carry on working in the bike shop. So I went full-time as a mechanic in the bike shop. Uh, did that for a handful of years. Um, then I managed to get myself a job at a bike brand as a mechanic. So uh, in the workshop, just rattling bikes together. Um, while I'm there, I, I progressed through the ranks a little bit. So I um, I worked a bit with returns team, worked a bit with design, um, and then spent my last couple of years there managing the workshop. And that was like 15 mechanics, 400 bikes a week, some weeks. Um, yeah, it, it was pretty full on. Um, and while I was there, I met David. Um, and then a year later, after David had left, I, I was there another year. Um, and Sonder started, and luckily Dave gave me a shout. So I, I'd sort of, in my time at that previous brand, I had sort of learned a little bit about how the Far East works. Uh, I'd, I'd always been sort of keen on development of new bikes. Like I, I always sort of got hold of the samples where I were and always got out, gave my feedback. Um, and yeah, I learned quite a bit about what I like, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and I just brought that here, really. Uh, this is my first crack at being a designer. Um, been here five years now. And yeah, I think you know, we're selling bikes, so it's, it's not all bad. Yeah, it's good, man. It's good for sure. Um, so let's chat a little bit about the bikes then um, and uh, just what goes on to designing them and stuff. Let's, let's go for price first because you've got the, the Sonder Cortex GX Eagle. Um, would that be... Would that be kind of your flagship full suspension bike, do you think? For now. Okay. <laughs> Got one launching this week. <laughs> yeah. So watch this space. Um, yeah, so that's that's like the, the that's personally what I'm riding at the minute. I've got one in the shed at home at the minute. Um, and yeah, it's sort of the mid travel, 120, 130, well, relatively short travel, really. But that's it's enough for my local trails. It's still a super fun bike to ride, uh, just perfect for UK trail centers, things like that. Um, but pricing wise, I think we just price fairly. Um, you know, we're not out to, like David said, we're not in it to make profit. Um, even though obviously we do need to make profit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in it sort of, yeah, put the products out that we believe in. And we also don't believe in ripping people off for that product. Um, so yeah, we, we just price our bikes fairly. Um, and using, um, like complete group sets. So obviously across most of our bikes, it's SRAM, uh, Rockshop 4 reverb seat posts all come from one place makes things nice and easy and then we use all our own finishing kit which allows us to sort of pick and choose exactly what we want and also helps us sort of yeah get get to that price point that we need mm-hmm. yeah so you design the bikes there neil in the uk yeah. um yeah. you send the specs over to the factories then and then they obviously make the frames um yeah so um how, sort of development process for me is uh me and david have a chat we get a bit of a brief down as to what we're after um and then left sort of free reign really so i i sort of get a few ideas down send them over to the factory who sort of wash a drawing together um once we get the drawing sort of qc that sign that off if we're happy we get a sample made that's like sort of a month six weeks usually get the sample get it back get it built um and then just get out ride as much as possible really um and sort of really, like, I, I struggle to ride now without just thinking about the bike all the time, thinking about what the bike's doing, like, what it feels like. Um, so, yeah, just get out and do that. Um, and then if we do need to resample, we'll sort of make the changes, resample. 
Um, if it's good to go, we'll sort of get some artwork sorted. We'll pick the final tube set to get the, the look of the frame right. And then it'll go through to production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I love and- about it is, um, we, is it's almost it's old school pen and paper, get a sample, write it to death and iterate till you get a point. And it's, it's one person doing it. And um, we've got uh, one of our kind of, it's an endurance road bike, Libre Time. It's just one bike of the year. And the people we're up against might like, specialized and and um, Canyon, who are amazing and just the power, you know, firepower they've got in design capability. I love that, you know, one person, one like human sat there compared to immense firepower and algorithms and wind tunnels. We can still come up with a class winning bike. And it, I think it's, it's that attention to detail as you ride in and the, the detail that Neil's put in about like flexing the chain state to time. To to, um, to to size in and flexing the reach to size in. So if you're riding an extra large or small to that rider, you've got the same amount of agility. You're not kind of over on one or under the other. The each each frame size, that level of detail is something that is sometimes overlooked uh, at the big brands because they're they're looking for I don't know what they're looking for, but they overlook it. They're looking for bulk. <laughs> yeah, you're shifting units, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, on the accessibility, the other aspect I kind of accessible prices is just through us when outkit started we were dead famous because this was in a pre kind of internet world we could sell something that would be half two-thirds of the price of the equipment branded product and we still aim to be you know two-thirds of the price of a comparable premium brand um and sometimes i wish it could like take people on the journey if you go to a factory i've been we make stuff at factories that you know, Rafa use and amazing brands, Montaigne and Mountain Equipment, you know, the, the leading brands and they'll come and bring a product out and say, this is $22, $22. And then you go on the internet and you can see people selling that then for 150 quid. And you think, well, how, how can you justify something that's $20 that you, you end up charging 150 yeah. quid for? Or something yeah, so, that's $5. So they're getting it produced at the factory for $20. Yeah. And it's exactly, you know, it's this... I wouldn't say it's the same components because every, every brand is different and invests differently and have design and QC processes. But, you know, way back, a guy told me, how, how, many, how much more time or does it take to make a 150-pound pair of jeans compared to a 30-pound pair of jeans? How much more material and how much more stitching? And it doesn't, so I, I much prefer to have a fair price. And then we build ourselves to be as lean as possible. But, you know, we don't cut on pay we're not a you know we're not a sweatshop ourselves and so we're not actually nowadays we're not the cheapest and with the internet you can there's always a shop in the uk wanting to get the cash back on something so it's true incredibly competitive pricing but so we do try and pitch things fair we're not greedy on margin so you know we tend to if something costs us 20 dollars, we probably charge 40 50 quid for it so in that instance it could be a third of what the premium brand is but we know we 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 don't charge bikes for are, prices. Bikes are different to that. It's a low marginal bike. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, bikes. Yeah, like, do you think what helps you there is you you don't really deal with mid management as such. So you're selling your own branded kit. You're selling out your own stores. You're not having to. Oh sell. yeah, you don't have a you don't have a markup on the way. Yeah. But the other thing is we we um. Uh, we work, we're for the enthusiast, so people who love it and people who love the outdoors. So what's important for us is if people see a bike, 
they're kind of like they're not seeing the collection of you know bits in a box that other people might see. You've seen where it can take you and what you can do. You know, you've seen the places it'll go to and the kind of fun you're going to have with it. So it kind of sells itself in a way. So you know, we we it's just a different setup. By having really good quality, we're only bothered about serving to the enthusiast. When you look, it costs something like four million dollars to to or four million euros to sponsor Sky. So whether you're a you know, when and then you think about how many bikes does Pinarello sell, and then you do the maths of how much per bike you pay is going yeah. to to Sky, which is mm. fine. This is I'm saying this seriously without judgment because you need that money to go around mm. to reinvest in the sport. Mm-hmm. But we do stuff differently. You know, we, we're trying to get people into the outdoors at a far more grassroots level and celebrate the outdoors. Like I was saying earlier about new people coming to the outdoors and coming into riding as a result of the lockdown. You know, that for me is something, it's a real joy to see people out doing stuff. And we need to make sure the infrastructure can cope with that. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, the accessible pricing is really important and not spending on stuff that actually the enthusiast doesn't really care a lot about. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, you know, when you were designing the bikes, did you think of the price thing first? Did you think, right, this is the kind of prices we want to be retailing these at? We always have outlines. So we, we, we always say, like with the signal steel that just came out, the target for that was to do an entry-level build at £1,200, um, which is what we've done. Um, but that didn't really sort of limit us in any way um, because we sort of knew, knew what was possible. Um, we knew what we wanted to do, and that we just set ourselves a sensible goal. Um, and yeah, we, we, we got there with it. Mm-hmm. I like the it state- where, you have, um, where the sell price is enough that you can put enough quality into the into the product. You're not chasing cents. Yeah. If you're after nicking dollars and cents out of the product, then for me, that's a volume game that I'm not actually that interested in. Other people do it loads better. You know, so I mentioned another podcast and the place I used to work before we go. What they've done with the boss nut is just insanely good. Um, but that's a wholly different mass market area oh, to work. And, and it's, it's not really our game of wanting to nick sense where you can out of a build. So there's a sweet spot where you're accessible and the volume is big enough that you've got a really nice business. You, we're not a niche cottage industry where, you know, 10 orders is is enough for the year's worth of mm-hmm. business. Yeah. We have to do a certain amount. And so everything that we do, I try and make sure we've got uh, the product is good enough and there is enough space in, in the market for this kind of, you know, it's where serious, where serious, the enthusiast starts being serious about their passion. That's mm-hmm. where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've priced really, really well there. Um, I'll give you an example. My friend, who I've surfed and snowboarded with for years, has never been into mountain biking. But he's finally getting into it now, right? I don't know if it's off the bike of COVID or whatever. I haven't a clue. But <laughs> he's wanting to ride mountain bikes now. But he's wanting to spend 1500 quid. Yeah. So, you know, that's what he's wanting to spend. He initially said 1000 I said, look, Neil, go up a wee bit more. Spend fifteen, you'll get a much nicer bike. Exactly, um, yeah. You know, so... You guys are kind of pricing in and around there as well. So it's really, really nice to see that. And yeah. because I think a lot of people are sometimes put off by the price of things. Now, to, to somebody that uses a bike all the time, spending three or four grand on a bike might not really mean much. But when most people don't spend that on their car, 
it's kind yeah. of hard to justify, you know. I, I really struggle. So, I mean, this is for years, you know, that's a lot of money, isn't it? I and mean, you can get a bit arrogant about pricing and what it means to people, how much they have to save. For so if we can get for £1,500, you know, much prefer to be in this part of the market than yeah. the three or 4,000 quid, which means we're different. We're not, we're not a cottage industry. You know, when we started, we could have done something like just have a little unit in Sheffield somewhere. Yeah, and six grand bikes. A couple of us, you know, working away selling six grand bikes and you'd have a lovely, lovely business. And again, this is without judgment because it's all the world's big enough. But for us, I really like the idea of having enough volume to have a really good product, really thought through product that's 1500 quid. But we're not after world domination of, you know, the kind of caliber boss nut kind of yeah. scale of production. Yeah, yeah. I guess so, how the world's big enough for us in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> I think it should be. <laughs> I think it certainly is. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's nice to see it. It's nice to see a brand like your, yourselves at that price range. Um, yeah, I do think that sort of fifteen hundred pound um, is a, is a bit of a sweet spot price for if you have a nice hardtail, you should be able to get that. Like from as you can get an NX Eagle spec bike with a Rockshot Revelation and a dropper post in it, fifteen hundred quid, and NX Eagle's plenty good enough for everyone. A Revelation, brilliant fork. And yeah, it's got a drop on it. What more do you need? It's it really is a sweet spot price point for us. Yeah, service is dead important for us as well. And I still remember that you know when I was a kid and I got as a second hand racer. And you, you can tell me age because I call it a racer. But what that did for me, <laughs> when I, I grew up in Leicester, then we moved to Yorkshire, and I lived about two miles away from the town centre. It just opened up my life of being able to ride to places and what it was just ace getting a new bike and that feeling of you know when I come home with a Neil lets us have a sample and I just think you know that feeling of a new bike when you're in uh when you've got it home so that idea was still very very keen and we're not always great and we do have stories where we've let customers down but the service of from before the point of purchase right through to aftercare is something we really uh we care about a lot um and we can do that because of that balance between volume and price that isn't you know We've got a business that is a service-led business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interest. It's interesting that because the economies of scale obviously come into play, and you'd think these bigger companies that are producing a lot more bikes can produce stuff cheaper. So initially, it should be cheaper to the consumer, but it doesn't really seem to work out that way a lot of the time. No, as Dave said, I think a lot of it is you've got to look at everything else they do. So a lot of the big guys, like they put a, little, a hell of a lot into like athlete programs, um, which can get very pricey. Imagine Trek with all their slope star riders and downhill teams and what have you. There's a lot of that. I think they are probably taking quite a big margin. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of an odd one. Like we, I think we've proven it can be done. Um, and obviously we, we've not got that big buying power um so yes yeah very nice tell me about the tell me about the steel um signal bike then what made you do the steel thing still seems to be getting very popular huh? yeah um so the original signal was the taiwan um and that came about because we've got the transmitter which is our aluminium 27.5 sort of chunkier tired agro hardtail uh, we used to get loads of requests for people to put um, 29 wheels in it, which obviously would just about go with some skinny tyres. 
uh, but they're definitely like not ideal. Uh, bottom bracket would be a bit high. Uh, clearance would be really tight on the rear. Um, so basically, we've got enough requests that we would decide to pull the trigger on a titanium, like dedicated 29er aggressive trail bike. Um, and that went down really well. You know, the tie signals definitely been one of our best sellers. Um, so off the back of that, we did the steel one. The reason for steel is just to keep that comfort. Um, and that's why the original one was tight as well, because obviously with an alloy frame, it tends to be quite stiff, can be quite uncomfortable. Um, with the transmitter, you have big tires, so low pressures, and it was a super comfortable bike to ride. Um, I actually sampled a single in aluminium, rode it around the car park and stripped it back down. It just it just didn't feel great. It was definitely way too harsh for what we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we just said, right, let's just crack on and get a steel one done. Um, we found a really good factory that were a big part of it. We found a factory that makes some really, really high profile, sort of good quality BMX frames. Um, so we know that the quality works there, the quality of materials is good. Um, and yeah, it's it, it did turn out really nice. I've still got one of those in the shed as well. It's just got my um, my two year old child seat bracket on it at the minute. <laughs> cool, cool. And uh, that's relatively new, the steel one, is it? It is, yeah, yeah. It launched probably what six weeks ago now. Oh wow! Um, wow. It, yeah, it's gone down well. Um, yeah, sales sales have been pretty good. Um, and yeah, it came out nice. So I, I'm quite pleased with that friend, to be honest. Yeah, cool, excellent, excellent. Now, you guys do mountain bikes, gravel, adventure, road. You just do the whole thing. Um, how many different styles do you kind of have in the mountain bike share? So, at the minute, we are sort of more about the sort of trail ride, trail riding sort of stuff. So, I guess it ranges from the broken road um, and the frontier, which of our sort of the way I describe them are the they're the wheels on the ground bike. So if you want to cover some big distance, you're not bothered about, you know, you're right, you're probably going to ride around the jumps. Um, you know, they're good for trail service, things like that. Then that's sort of that end of it. Uh, we have got another bike coming later this year that is a bit more XC race focused. So a bit of a head down, sort of quicker uh, mountain bike. Um, I actually, I ran on that at the weekend with my mate, um, he's on his gravel bike. And I had absolutely, I, I was actually pretty impressed with how easily I could keep up with him on a mountain bike. Um, so that's coming later this year. That'll be the more XC race focused bike. Um, and I'll say Broken Road Frontier. And then from there, we go into like the sort of transmitter and signal, which are both similar intentions. So both aggressive, playful trail bikes. Signals a bit of an air more towards covering big miles out in the peaks. Obviously, it's 29, so it does roll that bit better. Um, and you can build it a little bit lighter because the tyres aren't as massive, obviously. Um, where the transmitter's more than one for just jumping about down your local woods. Um, again, super versatile. I rode coast to coast off road um, on a transmitter a couple of years back. Absolutely fine. Um, but it definitely is that sort of hardtail hooligan sort of bike. Mm. Um, and then with the full suspension bikes, we've got the Cortex, which for me is the full suspension signal. So same fork travel, 120 mil rear. Uh, very very similar geometry and fit so you should be able to get straight off one onto the other um, and just get on with it perfectly well um, and then the one coming tomorrow is probably the sort of more aggro transmitter um, a little bit different I guess I can tell you about it yeah. it's, it's the um, the bike tomorrow is the new Evol um, the old Evol was 27.5 definitely 
derived from the transmitter riding style. So it was 140 rear, 150 front, regular 27.5 tyres though. Uh, so like a 2.5 front, 2.4 rear with a sweet spot on that bike. Um, and just a really, really good, fun play bike. Um, quick, but it weren't long enough to be super stable at speed. So it definitely had its limitations. Um, but it, it was just about mucking around down the local woods, really, just playing around. Sort of very, very similar. I think if it came out now, people would be comparing it to the new Santa Cruz 5010 which okay. is virtually identical to what our old Evo were. Um, this new Evo is 29er, a um, bit longer. So it's, I call it an enduro light. So it's not, not a full-blown enduro bike, but it's plenty close enough to be you know, competitive, I reckon. Uh, so again, 140 rear, 150 front. Uh, we'll be running it quite aggressive setup. So you'll get it with like Lyrics uh, or Yari Fork, um, Rockshock rear shocks or Cane Creek rear shocks. Um, and obviously we've got an aggressive set of tyres um, and it is the like I say it's, it's our sort of baby enduro bike for now mm-hmm. um, I had it up to Fort William testing it on the Fort William tracks um, and yeah it's just a super capable bike like I had no issue pedalling around the Fort William red route um, and then getting the lift to the top and blasting down like top chief so it's yeah I'm excited for it It's a capable machine It is it definitely is as I say it, it's sort of it's it's my bike. It's that one bike that I can take anywhere. I think it's it's the one I I'm more excited about than any. To be honest, at the minute. You say yeah. that about every bike. I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm not yet. Uh, yeah, I do tend to get pretty excited about. But I've sort of started amassing myself a pile of uh, nice parts to build myself an Evo when they uh, they land next week. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm keen for this one. Excellent. Um, is that running Eagle as well? Yeah, yeah. So um, we'll do. Obviously, you'll see the way we work with our specs. We run three specs, pretty much identical across all our bikes. So you get SX, NX, and GX Eagle. Uh, we've just received the new GX Eagle, so the 52 top uh, cassette in there. Um, but yeah, with this one, like well, other bikes we do Recon Revelation Pike. This one's going to be 35 Yari and Lyric, so it's like that bit more aggressive intentions. Um, and yeah, sort of our own brand finishing kit again, good solid kit, nice set of WTV tyres. Um, yeah, I think it's just out of the box. Like my sort of view on our build specs is you don't need to change them. Like out of the box, they should should really suit ninety five percent of people. Mm-hmm. So we run like proper animal bars, like seven eighty wide, uh, nine back, five up, just stuff that okay, if you were upgrading, it's what you'd get. It's the standard you'd get. When we started. Um, particularly with the transmitter, you just couldn't get 650B plus boost tires. No. So a lot of boost wheel sets, they, a lot of, you know, why we've got our own components is just those kind of niches that it wasn't available. So that led us down the path yeah. of really, even, really getting components that yeah. they're not substantive, they're not kind of um, like, sensible. Like I was just saying about handlebars, getting a sensibly priced um, sort of OE handlebar from like FSA or something, they just, they just don't do it. They do like 720s. Uh, you might get a 740, but finding a really nice quality 780 bar that weren't $50 um, is pretty difficult, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys get the frames. Do you build the bikes then there in the UK? You build them up there? Yeah, we do. Um, so for the first three years, I built them all myself as well. Oh, so wow. I, I'm pretty much a one-man band. Um, so, yeah, design, build customer service uh but now i've got a team of two guys got a third guy starting in a couple of weeks 
Um, and yeah, we're sort of aiming to put out sort of 50, 60 bikes a week at the minute. Right. So like there's only four years running that Saunder thing, really. Is that is that right? Uh, well, we've got a couple of dedicated customer service guys now. So we've got another guy called Neil, uh, Tom, and also Josh in customer service who are dedicated Sonder team. Uh, we've got um, dedicated buyer as well. Um, so we've got someone to look after that side of things for us. Um, and then I sort of, I'm the link between it all, if you like. I sort of liaise with all departments, make sure everything's sort of going in the right direction. We've got bike specialists in all of the stores. So on one element, there's dedi- there's a small crew of dedicated staff who are entirely focused on Sonder. But on a broader level, there's everybody, you know, Outkit and Sonder, with it kind of like the same, even though we call it different. I don't see it as... I, when people say in-house brand, I kind of like squirm a little bit because you think of Carrera or, you know, clever kind of thing. But uh, mm-hmm. again, without judgment, whereas um, everybody does. And so we have display bikes in the shops and a fleet of demo bikes. It's been offline because of because of lockdown. But what we try and do is if you're at home, wherever you are in the country, if you want to test ride a bike, we'll send you a bike. We charge something like £39 a weekend, £60 a weekend. And if you buy a bike, you get that 60 quid back. So wow. we're really trying to encourage it so you can try a bike at home around your local woods. If yeah, if you don't want to buy it, that's fine. You've had you know, the chance to ride it and you know, it's a rental thing. Um, but you know, if you do buy it, then you've effectively tried it, tried it for free mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to Very try cool. and take that pain out of pain out of buying. So whilst mm-hmm. there's a there's a small core team, there's a little bit of Sonder in everybody at Alpkit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. So for anybody guys wanting to get a Sonder bike here, let's say in Ireland or Northern Ireland here, how do they go about it? What's the best way to to do it? Website, I guess, is the that's the starting point. Um, we've got our new website's quite comprehensive. It's got a little bike builder in there, so you can update, swap bits and bobs out on there. Um, if there's anything that you want that's not on there, then pick up the phone, drop us an email. Um, one of the guys will pick it up. They might even forward it to me and I'll handle it. Um, but, yeah, we can, we can do pretty much anything because all bikes are built from scratch in-house. Uh, we've got camps with all major suppliers, so we, we, we do some really special builds. We, we have requests for some really nice things. Um, like we've got an XX1 AXS group set at the minute and a pair of SID race forks up in the workshop. For a nice bike that's going out next week so um yeah if, if you can't find it on our website we can't just get in touch we can do it yeah like that's that's the nice thing about being small right you can do that you can have that personal relationship yeah. with the customer yeah, that's the thing I, it, it is it's sort of nice for me because i do like to hear from customers and sort of know that customers are happy with the bikes but i think customers like being able to get hold of like me direct as well like my phone to be honest, my Facebook Messenger don't really have friends on there anymore. It's just all customers who find me on Facebook and message me. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, so it gets pretty full on. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't mind it, Joyce. It gets a bit sort of testing at times, but it's yeah, it's nice to have that sort of that connection with the customers, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what about servicing and warranty and stuff like that, guys? Then, if somebody buys a bike, say here. Um, and it needs a service or there's a warranty claim or something. How do you just work with that then remotely there? So servicing is not something we do remotely. Um, if someone were really keen, we could probably arrange courier to collect and get back to us. Um, servicing is mainly looked after in stores, though. Each store's got a workshop. 
Um, here at the minute, we've not got the space and we're, we're basically too busy building bikes to be servicing uh, bikes as well. Um, warranty, uh, we obviously look after from HQ. Um, any issues we can collect, uh, get it back to them, we sort out. Um, touch wood, we don't have a great deal of, of warranty issues. Yeah, yeah. What kind of warranty do you offer on the bikes? Uh, depends depends on material. So as a minimum, it's five years. Titanium, we offer 10. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, like I see a lot of brands now offering lifetime warranties on frames. Um, I, I think they're a bit of a con sometimes. If you read into them, it's expected lifetime. Um, yeah. So, yeah, expected lifetime, non-transferable. And realistically, how many people keep a bike more than sort of five or six years usually? Um, so I think our, our five-year warranty is fair for our aluminium and steel frames, and then the ten-year one, as I say, that's that's quite a bit longer than most people are going to keep the bike anyway. Yeah. Um, and even after that ten years, if customers do have a failure on the tie frames, we can get them repaired. Um, and if you know, same with the alloy and steel, if customers have failures outside of the five years, we're not just going to turn them away. We're going to look after them. So mm-hmm. we do have sort of crash replacement policy that we, we can do a bit of a discount on replacement yeah that's cool that's cool yeah it's crazy you know um when i was in malta there for a couple of years i worked in a bike store um and the brands offered lifetime warranty but you would always see the same people coming by with problems which yeah, is yeah. very interesting yeah um, we um, it's definitely something we notice yeah and that's gonna that may just turn around and bite a lot of those companies in the butt you know so I think I think so. Like there is the risk with the lifetime warranty that you know seven or eight years down the line, all these frames fatigue and all of a sudden they've all cracked and it's you're left to replace a load of seven or eight year old frames. Uh, like I'm not saying that's that's not why we don't offer it, but I think we're just sensible with what we do offer. Yeah, we kind of want to set ourselves up for the 99 percent of people who are who don't try and pull one yeah yeah so i hate the idea just because you're fearful that one person may yeah. be working to kind of like exacting standards that are just really hard to yeah. meet expectations of you don't build your business to protect yourself from that you build your business to serve the nine nine people who are loving riding your bikes and we do have nice customers we do have nice customers yeah yeah no and i think it's fair i think what you guys offer is totally fair 100 percent fair to be honest so it's very cool. Well, guys, how can folks best find us, see what you are doing, get in contact? The website, outkit.com, is important. We've got sonderbikes.com. Um, we've got Facebook pages, but we've also got a Sonder Owners group on Facebook, which is really active. Yeah. And that's not run by us either. That's so, run so. by customers. Well, by one of our customers. So if anyone's kind of interested in uh, speaking to other other riders joining the Sonder owners Facebook group is uh, yeah, super, is useful. super useful. Yeah, wow, that's cool that that's happening, eh? Yeah. Yeah, very, it's very special. Yeah. Very, very special. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, thanks so much for coming on. I think what you are doing there with Saunders is really, really interesting, and I certainly hope to see some of them on the bikes in the, uh, the north and the south here. It'd be pretty cool to see that. Um, but yeah, I really do appreciate what you're doing. I think your price points are really good, and what you're producing are really good. Um, so hopefully, uh, it goes well for you, and the the new bike goes well. I'll definitely be keeping an eye because I think that fifty, that one fifty travel, one forty travel 
spike for here covers all bases, all bases. Yeah. Keep an eye on your uh, emails tomorrow. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For sure. Well, guys, thanks so much for taking the time and coming out and chatting chatting to us for the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers, Grant. That's a wrap for episode 157, folks, and I hope you enjoyed that. And please do go and check out the Sonder bikes. Uh, They do look amazing. And if you're looking for a bike around that price, I don't think you can really go that wrong. The guys are very, very good. They still have a small team there. So if you phone them up, you probably will get speaking to Neil or some of the guys that are hands-on with the bikes. Um, It's pretty impressive what those guys are doing, the amounts of bikes they're selling with such a small team. So go check them out. I think it'll be well worth your while. Now, David and Neil, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really did enjoy chatting with you. And I love what you guys are doing with Alpkit there and with Sonder. I think that's the direction a lot of businesses need to go in. So well done, guys, for sticking with that vision from day one. It's it's not easy, and I'm sure you get pulled in so many different directions from different suppliers and factories and everything else. So well done sticking with that vision. It really has paid off, and I really do look forward to seeing some of your bikes on the trails over here in Ireland. Now, if you want to know more about Sonder Bikes, guys, just simply go to the show notes mtb-tribe.com search for the guys episode episode 157 and you will find quick links to the social posts and stuff there that Sonder have also some YouTube videos and things that the guys have done over the past while now if you're enjoying the podcast and you want to show your support the best way is by subscribing rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts every one of your ratings helps boost us on Apple's algorithms and helps spread the good word about the show to more people If you're not on Apple, you can find us and subscribe via Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean or whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. You can also visit our website mtb-tribe.com where you can find the complete bike catalogue, listen and download every show free from there. You can also subscribe there and get one email per week with a quick and easy link to listen to the show and a small synopsis of the guests for that week. You can also get involved on social media at MTB Tribe on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to get in contact with the show, just info at mtb-tribe.com. I will pick up the email and I will read it. I do read all emails and I will get back to you. So thanks so much again for being here this week, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if there's anything else you'd like to hear on the show, just drop me an email and I certainly will try my best to make that happen for you. So until next week, as always, get the bikes out, hit the trails, and stay MTV stoked.